last day of the year, and it falls on a Sunday, so we get to close out the year in the most appropriate way in our time of worship. Um, if you would remember, two weeks ago, we were in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, and the title of that message was, Behold Our God. It's to draw our attention to beholding the God of our salvation, the God of creation, the God that we see in Scripture. And that's important for us because, you know, like if we're going to say that we're Christians and we worship God, then we, we need to know who we worship. And I'm convinced that in knowing Him more and in knowing Him better, the, 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 the more accurate and the more genuine our, our worship is of Him. You can't um, our desire, what the, what the Scriptures continually, get call, continually call us to do, is to have a true, accurate picture in our minds and in our hearts of who God is and whom we worship. And there are portions of Scripture where we see that and it's easy to understand and easier to, I think, receive and embrace and then there are other parts of Scripture where it's more difficult to understand, more difficult to receive and to embrace God as He explains Himself, defines Himself to us in Scripture. And our passage that we've been going through in Romans chapter 9 can be one of those passages that's difficult for us to go through and to read that this is who our, this is who our God is. Um, obviously, we're looking at particular characteristics, attributes, works of God in this passage that are not to be taken at the exclusion of other passages of Scripture. But if we want to do justice to the Scriptures, we have to read through the entirety of the Scriptures, study through the entirety of the Scriptures so that we might know who is this God whom we worship, that we love, and the one that He calls us to behold. Because I said two weeks ago, God is not ashamed of who he is. And neither should we be. Um, and passages like this help us, I think, bring us... This is what this passage does for me. It brings me low. It humbles me. It forces me to wrestle with Scripture that can be difficult to wrestle with. And so I encourage you, as we work through this, if you're saying, oh, this is, this is hard this is difficult. My encouragement for you is to, to wrestle, to engage with God, to go to Him, and, and to find Him good and faithful, to, to care for us adequately as we wrestle with and struggle through passages of Scripture that are more difficult than others. But I encourage us today that what it is that we're called to do is to behold our God, and we want to behold particular aspects of him today as he reveals himself in the scriptures to us. We want to remember what the big picture context is here, the recap of some of the things that we've already seen. Um, Paul is explaining how is it that Gentiles are coming in and receiving this gift of salvation and the Old Testament covenant promises that were promised to Israel. How is it you imagine yourself as being um, an Israelite, being a Jew in the first century, and you're seeing all these things that were promised to you in the Scriptures being applied and carried out now to those Gentiles. 
How is it that they get the benefit of all of these things? And Paul's explaining to them how this is. And he's already told them, we've already covered the fact that God's children are not known by nationality, but by faith. This has been the big thing, justification by faith. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. In order for you to be saved, to be reconciled with God, it is by faith and by faith alone. And children of God are children of faith. That the children of God are children of faith, yes, but they are, they have been, they are children of God because they have been elected to be loved by God from the, before the foundation of the world. This, what we're seeing in real space and time as people are coming to know Christ is what it is that God has already determined to be done before anything was ever created. We get to see in real space and time God's activity, his decision beforehand actually taking place like among us. When people come to know Christ, they make a profession of faith. The, this, the Spirit of God regenerates them. They're born again. We are seeing God's eternal divine decree actually come about poof, real space and time in, in this person's life. That is, that is remarkable. That is incredible when we see that. And that's what Paul is saying. This is what God has been decreeing, what he's already decreed and what he's doing. Then, we've, as we um, talked about two weeks ago, we begin to turn the corner to talk about um, God's character. Not only what it is that God does, but, but who is this God that does these things? And we talked about how God is a God of justice. God shows mercy on whom he wills. God also hardens whom he wills. And that theme carries in, it leaks into our passage today as Paul continues to explain this activity of salvation that's happening. How, how, is the church, how, are, how are these people coming to profess Christ and be included in the church? And so as we get ready to read Romans chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 19 through 26 today. I'm really only, only going to cover 19 through um, 23 but I want to read 24, 25, and 26 as well because it, it helps us keep in mind the broader context of what Paul is saying and prepares us for where it is that he's going to go um, after this section here. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Romans chapter 9. I'm actually going to begin in verse 18, and then I'm going to read through verse 26, and the majority of our time this morning will be focusing on verses 19 through um, 23. So let's read together as we see um, this continuing to, this call for us to continue to behold our God. Romans 9, 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called not only not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, there, there they will be called sons of the living God. Verses 24, 25, and 26, like I said, we're not going to spend any time on today, but I included in our reading for us to, again, to keep together the context of what is being spoken, what has been taught, and where we're going, this this relationship, this dynamic between Jew and Gentile and the inclusion in the New Testament church. But verses 19 through 23 today call us to behold our God and to behold particular aspects of who he is. We've seen his justice. We've seen that he has mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whomever he wants to harden. And what we see in our passage today, number one in verse 19, is God's sovereignty. God is is absolute and complete sovereignty. We see, secondly, God's freedom. God is free to do whatever he chooses. And whatever he chooses is consistent with his character. And thirdly, we see God's patience. These are things that we want to take into consideration and understand them completely because Because this is how God reveals himself to us in the scripture. You can't pick and choose the aspects of God that you like and aspects that you don't like because if we do that, we're doing nothing more than what the world does. We create and craft a God in our own image that we choose to worship because these are the aspects of my God that I like. And and God will not be worshiped. I mean, he he is like exponentially gracious and kind and merciful to us in that I, I think we do this anyways. We're naturally drawn to the, the, I, the aspects of God that we, that we like and we appreciate a lot. And we kind of like downplay the things that are hard for us to accept, aspects of him that, that, that are difficult to wrestle with. And I think God just in his forbearance and his patience, like he just, yeah, like he understands our frame. He remembers that we're dust. But our call today is to take a look at the Scripture. What does it say? And one of the things that we see today in verse 19 is God's sovereignty. The the issue of God's justice continues to seep into verse 19 from what it is that we saw in 14 through 18. And that's why I read verse 18 for us this morning. I wanted for us to be reminded that God has mercy in whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He is absolutely sovereign in what he does. All of his working... All of his doing is out of his complete rule and dominion over his creation. He has complete sovereignty. And so then the question that arises in verse 19, you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Verse 19 launches us into a a realm of considering God's Um, power, his freedom, his ability to ordain all things and yet maintain his perfect 
righteousness. How can God find fault with a sinful man when God hardens man towards sin? That's the question that's being asked. And I think first we need to really understand biblically that um, the, the follow-up question for, you know, for who can resist his will is important for us to consider. You think of Proverbs chapter 16. And we think about the way that Scripture talks about God's sovereignty in all things. Can people resist the will of God? And this is, you know, a question that I think has several different ways of answering it and considering it. I'm, I'm trying to do what I can to stick to as close to, to the text of Romans 9 and Paul's, the argument that God is making as I can you talk about God has a decreed will and he has a declared will. His decreed will is that which is, cannot be violated. It will always be done. God has a declared will of which it is that he, he wants, he, he desires for us to do. And, and his declared will can be broken, but his decreed will cannot be broken and things like that. What I want for us to do is just to consider some of, these, some of the texts that we see um, just in the book of Proverbs chapter 16 and for us to consider the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. You consider Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. God controls the tongue. You think of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble or your translation might say disaster or destruction. God is absolutely sovereign. He has a purpose for every molecule. And it is serving his divinely, sovereignly ordained purpose. You think of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes or determines its steps. Our steps are determined by the Lord. In the same chapter, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You turn over to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24. I'm trying to show us these passages because I want us to see that this is not an isolated idea in Romans chapter 9. This idea that God is sovereign over all things and all things are ordained by him and serve his purposes are all throughout the scripture. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? There's a part of our lives which remains mysterious to us because God ordains things for us to do and steps for us to take that we, that we don't understand and that confuse us at times. But we're reminded in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. The example that we have in Romans chapter 9 most recently is the life of Pharaoh. 
God is sovereign in the life of, the, uh, in the life of Pharaoh. He was told that for this very purpose, this is Romans 9.17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Pharaoh didn't come into a position of power in Egypt, Egypt by his own cunning, by his own goodness, by his own wisdom, by his own intellect, his own power. He came into that position of power by God's ordination for him to be in that position of power for the purpose that God would show his power in Pharaoh. God's desire is for him to be worshipped and magnified and glorified through everything that he does, which is everything that happens. God's constantly drawing the eyes of all things to him. And one of those things that we're called to acknowledge about him is his absolute sovereignty over all things. The question then I think many people wrestle with is that how can God ordain all things, even evil things, and yet still be righteous and not guilty of committing sin. And this is where you get into some, you know, people have tried to, to explain this and um, reason biblically through this idea. How is it that God himself, okay, does God ordain evil? Yes, he does. So how can God ordain evil and then yet him not be evil? How can, God, how can we say that God is a God of love and holiness and righteousness and yet ordain things to come about that are not righteous and are not holy and yet and not impugn his character? I think it's important for us to understand there are a few, there are a few terms that I think are helpful for us in this way. Um, divine concurrence would be one of those terms. Divine concurrence is the idea that two or more parties can be at work in the same scenario with different motives and outcomes, yet under God's sovereign control. And yet God can ordain all things to come to pass and not be guilty of committing sin. So an example of this would be like in the life of Joseph, where it was clear in Joseph's mind that the evil that his brothers committed in selling him into slavery was, in, was under the plan and the guidance and ordination of the Lord. And he acknowledges, you meant it for evil. You were trying to do me dirty. You meant it for evil. But God was over it all, and he meant it for good. And yet the brothers are still guilty of committing the evil act that they did. Divine concurrence. God is at work, and the brothers of Joseph are at work. The, uh, the brothers of Joseph maintain their guilt and their evil of what it is that they have done, while in all of it, God rules sovereignly over it all to ultimately bring about what he has designed to bring about. One of the, I think one of the best explanations of this is Theodora Beza was Calvin's chosen successor. And he says this, For God, by eternally ordaining what would happen in each moment, 
has also ordained the means by which it pleased him that each thing would occur. Nonetheless, he did so in such a way that if any fault is found in a secondary cause, there is no fault or guilt in the eternal counsel of God. So in the, in the, in the example of Joseph and his brothers, the secondary cause would be the brothers. The eternal counsel or decree or, or what many have called the primary cause would be God himself. Divine concurrence exists with primary and secondary causality. God being primary over all things, and yet choosing means or secondary means by which what he ultimately decides he wants done will come about, and that's how he maintains his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice, and is not guilty of sin, and yet the things that actually do those evil and wicked deeds are genuinely guilty of sin. And he uses this example of, a, of the inner workings of a clock that I think are super helpful. He says, if you open up a clock or a watch, and you see all the different wheels at work, and there's one giant wheel in the middle of the clock that is running the whole clock. And while some wheels work in a clockwise motion with the big wheel that works in the clockwise motion, there are other wheels in the clock that work counterclockwise. That the big wheel is moving, and it would seem to us that any wheel within that clock that works counterclockwise to the big wheel moving clockwise would work counterintuitively or opposed to the working of the big wheel. And he says, this is, this is similar to what it is that God does in the working of all mankind. God is working all things forward according to what it is that he has designed. Even the things, the evil things that seem to be working counterproductively to what it is that he desires. But all of it taking place with what it is that he has sovereignly decreed to be. And so our text tells us and reminds us in the form of a question for who can resist his will. Does God have a will? He absolutely has a will. He has a desire. He has a purpose. And it is being carried out. One of the wonderful comforts that this brings in the life of the believer is that anything and everything, including the greatest difficulties in life that we can see and experience, are all within the sovereign purposes of God in our lives. There's nothing, there is nothing by which you go, God, are you, did you have a plan for this? Are you working in this, through this? Passages like this remind us of the sovereignty of God, and the answer to that question is always yes. And they are working for his eternal purposes. They may not be what we would desire, but it's what it is that he desires, and therein lies the struggle for the believer, right? I mean, much of the Christian life is, is living right there. Lord, I don't want this. I don't like this. I'd like for you to change this. Would you please do that? And he is saying, this is part of my ordained plan for you, and it is for your good. And these, these temporary struggles are preparing you to receive an eternal weight of glory. Not only that, not only look to what is to come, but know this, that everything I have ordained for you in your life, I have ordained to be with you in your life. In the most difficult trials, you're not alone. 
he is with his people every moment of every day, providing what we need to look to him and to trust in him in every season of life. Even in considering all that, though, the text in verse 20 and 21, as we behold God's freedom, we saw in verse 19 his sovereignty. In verses 20 and 21, we behold his freedom. Really, the answer to the questions posed in verse 19 can be as simple as this. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? We think about divine concurrence and we think about primary and secondary causality and we think about all these things. What I find really, and, and I mention those things to, to help us. I think by God's grace, he, he helps us through thinking those, through those terms. But what I find really interesting is, you know, the biblical response, the simple response is, when you venture into the realm of asking the question, God, is this appropriate for you to do? You're venturing onto dangerous ground. Because it, you, you're, what you're doing is you're beginning to extend yourself towards God in a way of saying, God, you need to give an answer as to why this is the way that it is. And God is totally free he doesn't have to give a response or an answer or an explanation for anything that he does. He, he's God. This is where the creator and the creature distinction is really, really important to maintain. Brothers and sisters, you and I are not the creator. We are the creature. We are the creation. He's the creator. And the simple answer from the text is this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's talking about those whom he has mercy upon for salvation and those whom he hardens Does God not have, the, the, the biblical answer is God's the potter and people are lumps of clay and he has the absolute freedom to do whatever he wants with any piece of clay. We were talking about this last night um, with the kids and I asked Micah, I said, Micah, as you're, you know, you're, you're building your Legos and do any of your Legos, and you're building an airplane, do any of your Legos ever turn to you and say, Micah, I don't want to be an airplane, I want to be a boat. He looks at me and goes, no, like with this look Micah has, you know, like, Dad, no, of course not. I asked Abigail, and I said, if you're drawing a picture of a character, does the pencil or the paper ever turn to you and go, I don't want to draw this character. Let's draw this one instead. And she's like, Dad, come on, no. And as crude as that illustration is, that's the illustration that's given from the Scripture, does the clay ever look to the, to the potter and go, I don't want to be a, a little pudgy pot. I want to be a vase. Does God ever do 
Is God capable of doing wrong? God is light. There is no darkness in him. Everything that he does is perfect and right and just and holy and good. The simple answer from the text is, is it wrong for God to harden some and have mercy upon some? No, because they're all lumps of clay on the spinning wheel of the potter, and he can make it and fashion it into whatever he wants. And he has the freedom to do that because he's God. That distinction is is going... What that distinction does for me, as I said earlier, it humbles me. Uh, What he says in verse 20, who are you, O man? Don't don't miss those two words, O man. It's a direct reminder of who it is that is asking the question and who it is that is being asked. You better be careful when you're asking questions and, and thinking that God might have to give you an answer. Yes, he understands it's difficult for us. But to do so is to, to answer back to God. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God, to dispute with him? To contradict him. It's really um, an exercise of attempting to scrutinize God. You know what scrutiny is? It's to take something under careful examination. And in this case, it's to take something under careful examination to, to approve of whether or not what God is doing is right or wrong. And as man, God is above scrutiny. We have no right to scrutinize God, to bring anything that he does or says or himself under the microscope and go, hmm, God, can you give an answer for why this is? I demand that you tell me, why are you like this and why have you done things like this? Mankind has no right to ask the one who is absolutely free over his creation as to why he does what he does with his creation. It's his. It's his. He has the freedom, and we're called to behold God's freedom. This idea of the potter having right over a lump of clay to make some lump for honorable use and other for dishonorable use is actually borrowed from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29 actually uses it in terms of, you know, the sinful man attempting to place God in the position of being the clay and man being the potter. The book of Isaiah is a, is a is a prophetic book about the judgment of God that's coming upon Israel because of their apostasy, their, their wickedness, their living in sin. And what sinful man does is try to turn things against God. And, and in some ways, it's an, it's an indictment against God. God, you were unjust in punishing us for our sin. And that's an expression of the pot, the pot seeking to take position of authority over the potter. And in Isaiah 29, 16, this is, what, this is what the wicked man says. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? 
that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. He also uses it, it's also used, excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Isaiah chapter 45 is the the chapter where we see that God is going to deliver his people by the hand of a pagan king, Cyrus. God exercising his sovereign freedom to say, okay, Cyrus, you're going to serve my purposes. And he says in Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earth and pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? The whole idea, Paul basically is using the argument from Isaiah the same way that he's using it in Romans chapter 9, that God has always, even back then and now, had the complete sovereignty and freedom to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with what he wants. This is nothing new. As we see the Gentiles coming in and getting saved and, and receiving the old covenant promises, God is doing over the lumps of clay what he chooses to do. If he chooses to save the Gentiles and bring them into the church and apply the old covenant promises to the the Gentiles, then that's what he chooses to do. If that's how he chose to veil in some ways this promise of redemption throughout the Old Testament and then yet chooses to open it up and reveal it in the New Testament and that's what he's done, that's what he's chosen to do. God is simply being who he has always been. The potter. When God spoke in Genesis, exist, it was the potter speaking things into existence. The basis for God's justice and all that he does is that it is being used for the purpose into which it was made, and it glorifies God. God's justice is based upon a thing being used according to the reason of which it was made. When God makes something for a particular purpose and then he uses it for that particular purpose, good or bad, according to our thinking, God is simply doing what he has determined to do from before any of us were ever created and by him using that thing for which he created it, it glorifies him. And our desire, God's desire is for him to be glorified, and our desire is to see him glorified and to glorify him as well. But not only do we see, not are we called to behold God's sovereignty, behold God's freedom, but we are also called to behold his patience, which we see in verses 22 and 23. What if God desiring to show his wrath? You think about that? God desires to show his wrath. See, this is one of these things that it's, it, it's difficult to talk about and it's difficult to explain because God is all of who he is all the time. 
And we will never completely unearth, or we'll never know all of the depths of who God is because he is eternal. We're going to spend an eternity. That, that's like, I don't know if you know that, this is our, that's a really long time. You will ne- if you're going to be with him in glory, you will never exhaust knowing him because he is un- unknowable, he is inexhaustible. But yet, there are components of God, attributes of God, that he does reveal of himself, even if they're not fully exhausted. And he does reveal elements of himself in some way, shape, or form, which, which tell us and define to us who he is. And he desires to reveal all of himself to some degree so that he might be fully known to some degree and worshipped for his completeness, not just a sliver of him. He doesn't want to just be worshipped in the fact that he, that he shows love and he shows compassion and mercy. He wants to be worshipped in that he is jealous and hates and desires to show his wrath. See, in order for us to worship all of who God is, brothers and sisters, we must know more of who he is. And in this passage, he is revealing more of himself to us. That he is a God that does desire to show wrath. But look at what he does. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, his power and his wrath being coupled together for a particular purpose, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God desires to show his wrath and make his power known on vessels prepared for destruction. He prepares vessels for destruction. And he desires to show them his wrath and make his power known. But what does he do? In desiring to show that wrath, he does not immediately execute that wrath. But he's long-suffering and patient and bears with these vessels prepared for destruction until the day when the patience is no more. Remember he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. His, his wrath is revealed to them, but it's not executed fully yet. He's patient with those vessels of wrath. Why? Verse 23, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which God has prepared hand for glory. God has vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he desires to show that wrath towards them. But he shows them patience so that he might show the riches of his glory upon vessels created for mercy. The, this, this phrase, riches of glory, is it's just a short, it, it, it means salvation. Paul uses it in several places. He uses it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, where it's used to describe the Spirit's work by where we receive Christ and grow in our knowledge of him. 
It's also used in Colossians 1.27 to describe the mystery of the salvation given to the Gentiles in Christ. And so this phrase, riches of his glory, just simply means, uh, compacted together, it just means salvation. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known his salvation for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared and for glory? God withholds his wrath upon the vessel of destruction so that he might save his predetermined vessels of mercy. That's the reason why God's patience exists towards the non-believer, so that all those whom he has called and elected salvation will be saved. And there comes a day when all of that God has, all that God has ordained to be his children are brought in. That is the day that his patience is finished with the vessels of wrath, and they are judged, and the vessels of mercy are brought in fully and finally and completely to enjoy him and his kingdom forever. And that includes Gentiles as well as Jews, as his argument moves forward from there in verses 24, 25, and 26. How are the Gentiles coming in? God has elected them. How are the Gentiles being saved? They're vessels of mercy. From eternity past, God has decided to have a people for himself that is made up of every tribe and tongue and people and language and nation. And what we see happening in real space and time is just what it is that he has ordained to come about. And there are things and there are situations in our lives in which we do not like what it is that he has ordained. And those are the moments in which we must learn to yield ourselves and submit to him and and hold on to the one whom we know is completely good and just and, and, and merciful and kind, but also one who is jealous and has a hatred for sin. We want to worship God entirely for all of who he is and not neglect any aspect of him. The call is as we you know, close this year, move into the next year, behold your God. And then what is it that we get into? Behold, who are God's people? As he then begins to unfold this relationship between Jew and Gentile, what makes up the church. For today, as we prepare to move towards communion, as I've said several times, uh, passages like this, they're humbling. Uh, they put me in awe of who God is. I also know that um, truths like this are digested incrementally sometimes. I remember a season of my life and one of the good brothers here uh, knows this season very well, and of which I would have, I just would have rejected or really, really wrestled with a lot of what I see in this text today. And it was, it was through, honestly, the faithful ministry of some godly men that continued to, to push me towards the Scripture. You need to engage with God. 
you need to wrestle through these scriptures. And you know what I did? I wrestled. And you know who won? Not me. It was like wrestling with God and he touched my hip. And I'm lame now. But it was for my good. Teaching me to, to yield myself to the truth of his word. And all the aspects of who God is as he presents himself in the scripture. So my encouragement to you today is, is to don't run from, run to God. Wrestle, engage with the text, move towards him and watch him. I mean, God is so, he's so good. He's so perfect. He knows exactly how to bring you into submission. And he does it with the utmost love and care and purpose for you to, to learn to love him more and worship him more. Engage with the text. Learn to love all of the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to learn to move towards others, presenting to them what is appropriate about the fullness of God, but never, being, never shying away. As I said at the beginning, God is not ashamed of who he is, and neither should we be. And our desire is to behold him and to worship him completely. This is the time in our service where we're going to move towards the communion table, and there's really no clearer picture of God than the God-man, Jesus Christ. What we've seen in Romans 9 is what you'll see as you read through the Gospels and you examine the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, having mercy upon some, hardening others. This is the time in our service where those whom he has had mercy upon respond to him with gratitude and love and worship and celebration that we are included in his family. And so if you're here today and you're visiting and you know Christ by faith, by faith alone, then we do invite for you to partake of the communion time with us. But if you are trusting in and of yourself, on, of any merit, of any good, in, your, in, in being accepted by God, then, then let them pass. But consider the invitation to come to Christ by faith. These things that we read, it doesn't prevent us from calling people to come to Christ. For he is working through, he ordains the ends, but the means as well. And the means of bringing people into the kingdom is the preaching of the gospel so that they might eat and drink of Christ by faith and by faith alone and be saved. And so we're committed to the gospel, we're committed to the truth of the word, and we partake of this communion time together with great joy and humility. So the elements are on the tables behind you. You can get those and return back to your seat. And we will partake of communion together shortly.